0: The Nonprofit Social Media Summit is back and better than ever. This year, the summit is all virtual and coming directly to your screens on November 2nd and 3rd. Speakers include Amy Sample Ward, Afua Bruce, Lisa Mae Brunson, and of course, yours truly, and many more. We're covering everything from TikTok to time management, Facebook ads to influencer marketing. Get your free ticket at nonprofitsocialmediasummit.com, and I'll see you there. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively Build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Okay. Hi, everyone. So excited to have you back on Nonprofit Nation. I'm so excited to have you listening. This is your host, Julia Campbell. And today we have actually one of my favorite topics, end of year fundraising, what to do, some fresh ideas, key actions, everything that you need to make your end of year campaign the best that it can be. And I have two special guests today. The first is Lori Lipstein. She's a passionate and innovative leader with more than a decade of experience in the nonprofit field, and she brings limitless energy and fierce dedication to all of her partnerships. Her vision for Thread Strategies, which she founded, and she's the principal, grew from her experience observing many nonprofits with innovative ideas struggle to maximize their impact because of funding obstacles. And I think we can all identify with that. She formed a team of fundraising experts in all areas of the practice and Lori seeks to break down funding barriers facing small nonprofits, especially so they can maximize impact and threads partners benefit from Lori's team and Lori's creative and organized mind, which she uses to guide organizations to new levels of success. Little known fact, Lori is also amazing at karaoke and we can talk about that later Holly Richardson is also a guest today. Holly loves the written word and enjoys applying her academic background in literature and sociolinguistics to writing for development. Beyond supporting partners to enhance their grant applications and reports, regular donor communications and stewardship pieces, Holly is an adept time and task manager. That's my favorite thing. I love talking about time management who can model for partners what a high-functioning development to leadership relationship should ideally look and feel like. And Lori's in Washington, Holly's in Boulder, I'm in Boston, this is why I love podcasting. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. So great to be here. Thanks for having us on, Julia.
0: Agreed. Thanks so much. Sure. So how did you start out in this work? And sort of, you know, I have a lot of fundraising consultants on, but I know that, you have a unique take on fundraising, so Lori, maybe you want to answer this first.
1: Sure. So, like most fundraisers, I kind of stumbled into a role in fundraising. I was working in the nonprofit space on more on the program side in um, in a school, actually, in service learning, and I ended up going over to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to work on a program that I had managed in the school where I had worked first, a fundraising program. So never thought that I would be a fundraiser, but I have to say from day one of taking that role, I loved it because I had no idea that it was all about relationships. I mean, those of us in fundraising know that so well now, but the people outside of it don't always get that. So I am a people person and I immediately fell in love with my fundraising role. And our unique take on fundraising at Thread Strategies is that we focus our work on smaller teams, smaller fundraising teams, organizations that are still building up their fundraising operations and development departments. And we think that donors of all levels and all sizes and all types are important. So we really like to think about small donors just as much as big donors in the way that we approach our work.
0: Do you want to answer the take on that, Holly?
2: Yeah, I'll jump in as well. So I, much like Lori, came to fundraising sort of by accident. It was after college in 2007, seven eight when the recession was upon us, and it was really hard to land a job. And I happened to get my first role out of college with the YMCA of Philadelphia and vicinity, working as their development assistant. And just thought, oh, this is sort of my introduction to the working world. But I never thought that was going to be the career path that unfolded before me. And then over the years, I kept working in fundraising, kept building skill. I went back to graduate school to do my master's in linguistics, and I thought, okay, this will be my off-ramp. I'm going to go on a different path now. Thank you, fundraising, but not what I'm do forever. And I just kept finding my way back. I then worked as a professional grant writer. Doing other various donor communications and just have continually found my way back to this world. And I think one of the fabulous things about fundraising is it does allow all different backgrounds and all different personalities to find their particular niche within this work. So for me, I really gravitate towards the writing. And the mechanics of how we put together our messaging, not just the stories we're telling. But I love that this is a field that appeals to me as a literature person, but it also appeals to people with really mathematical minds. who are super quantitative and just you get the whole spectrum of who you get to work with
0: and how you get to work with them. I love that this sector attracts so many different backgrounds and the people I've had on the podcast, I don't think I've ever had a sociolinguistics person.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not the most normal, you see? (laughs) Yep.
0: (laughs) I'm really excited because I know that words matter. And actually, a podcast that I just released recently was all about grant applications and the wording that we use and how we can make our grants not as destructive as perhaps they they were in the past so how can we like move forward so i love that so thank you both for being here now we know we don't want to go in the statistics because we all know the most money raised whether we love it hate it is at the end of the year now knowing that it's october when should we start planning ideally probably sooner than october but when should we ideally start planning if we, are, if we have all our ducks in a row?
1: Uh, well, this is Lori and I'll, I'll take that one. So ideally, if you're listening to this, you have already started your planning in some way, shape or form. Usually we recommend beginning with the preparation for your end of year campaign in September or even August for those super early birds. But September is a really solid month to begin. But if you find yourself listening to this, we are in October right now, and you are thinking, "Ah, I'm just getting started. Is it too late? It's definitely not too late to still put together a really solid end of year campaign. And so Holly and I are really happy to be here to give you some of the kind of tips and tricks of where we would recommend focusing your time at this point in the year, given that it's October.
0: Exactly. And I always say, I mean, it's not my quote, and I don't know who said it, but the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. (laughs) The next best time is today, right? It's all you can do. So if you're just starting now, what should you focus on? Lori, do you want to give us some ideas?
1: Yeah, I got two in mind and I'm going to pass to Holly to give a few more as well. And hopefully for all those listening, these feel like super actionable, specific places to get started. So where I would begin first and foremost is to set a goal, which might sound like a, you know, duh, of course we need a goal. But we want to talk about a goal being not just, hey, there's a hole in your budget and so you better raise that much money, but really think intentionally about the dollar amount goal that you're going to raise and the narrative behind that goal and how you can communicate that through your campaign materials and the, the writing that you'll do and your letters and your emails and social media. To bring back all your communications to one goal and one goal that has a specific narrative behind it, the impact. What does that money mean for your community, for your mission when you, when you hit that goal? So it's more than a metric. Really think about it as the organizing principle for the rest of your campaign and how you're going to approach your con- creating your content. It's really your North Star, if you will. So that's the first place that I would start. And then the next thing I would say is start to block out how you're going to communicate that goal, uh, what channels you're going to use to communicate through multi-touch points through the rest of the year. And, you know, first of all, it should be more than one channel. So not just email or not just social media. And I'm going to make a plug right now for putting in a mailed letter as one of your channels of communication still. Direct mail is definitely not dead. The data shows it still has a big part of uh, a big role in converting donors to taking action. And if it's October, you still got time to get a really great letter together and in the mail to at least some segment of your list. If, if it feels overwhelming to mail that letter to hundreds of people or thousands of people in a short time period, just think about your most active, engaged segment and trying to get a letter together that will at least go to those people.
0: Holly, do you want to add to that?
2: Yeah. I would say, again, just can't stress enough how important it is to have that multi-channel communication. I think especially over the last couple of years, everyone has gotten so accustomed to living the bulk of our lives through. Our computers and everything is digital, but there's still something really powerful about receiving mail and holding it in your hands. And even if you don't have donors who then plop the check back in the mail to you, but they go online and make their gift, it's that multi channel connection. And you never know how your donors are going to interact with your content or when they're going to interact with it. So doing it in that multi channel way is just so important to covering all of the opportunities you have for how and when people might be connecting with you. And to that effect, then, We also really want to encourage you to think about Giving Tuesday. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger every year. It's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving every year. And it continues to raise just billions and billions of dollars. And more and more organizations are participating. And it's really gotten to the point where if you are not participating on Giving Tuesday and having a presence there that someone else is going to take up your attention space. And so, yes, it is a noisy landscape, but not participating. No one is going to think, oh, I'm so glad that Holly's nonprofit didn't do Giving Tuesday because it was so loud and noisy. I'm going to give her a gift because she didn't clog up my inbox. You get no credit for being quiet, especially on Giving Tuesday. But even as you think about Giving Tuesday, maybe it feels overwhelming or not part of your plan to approach that day as a time for revenue generation. But think about it as a time then to do a thank-a-thon, or maybe it becomes an opportunity where you finally send out that donor survey you've always wanted to, or it's an email or an address acquisition campaign, or, you know, especially as we come out of the worst of the pandemic times, maybe this is the year where you do an in-person something or a hybrid event, where you host a webinar that you've always wanted to There's lots of ways to think about Giving Tuesday as a moment of attention and connection that doesn't just have to be about dollars. So. You got to Giving Tuesday, no matter what you
0: do with it, but you got to do it. I completely agree with that philosophy, and people know how I feel about Giving Tuesday. I talk about it a lot, and I know that it's not necessarily for everyone, but I love what you said, and I really want to pull out this quote: "You get no credit for being quiet, and you don't get the money that you don't ask for if you are not putting yourself out there." And now, what I think nonprofits what they do as a mistake on Giving Tuesday is they haven't actually built the infrastructure all year. They haven't built the relationship. They haven't built the trust. They haven't communicated. And then all of a sudden they say, Oh, it's Giving Tuesday, give us money. And I think that is definitely a huge, huge misstep. And that's why a lot of organizations I think are shying away or saying Giving Tuesday is not for them because they haven't built that infrastructure to start with. So Let's go into segueing into what nonprofits get wrong at end of year. And I have a feeling it has to do with the stewardship factor <laughs> and also maybe not acting and maybe being quiet. Totally. Well, I think there's two main things
2: that nonprofits tend to get a little sideways on when it comes to their end-of-year campaign. Number one is all they do is ask, and they don't incorporate cultivation into their communication strategy and the overall sequence of how they're reaching out to their folks. And we hear all the time of partners who are scared to death that they are going to have unsubscribes if they do the volume of email that we recommend. And we always say, yeah, people are probably going to want to unsubscribe if they feel like all you're doing is asking them. Because if all I hear is give, 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 that is a message I want to turn off. But if I hear, hey, here's some interesting content or a feel good moment or something I didn't know, and then an ask, and then maybe another ask, but then more entertainment content or more information content or more engagement, balancing out that cultivation and solicitation, you have to have a balance of both of those factors throughout the entirety of your campaign. It doesn't work just to do cultivation for the first four weeks and then solicitation for the next four. They have to be interspersed the entire way through. So I think that's point number one is if you just ask, that's when you're going to turn off your donors as sort of point number one. Point number two, I would say is we see a lot of campaigns that focus their case for support and their ask on what's already happened this year. They try and use all the impact that's been accomplished from this past year to say, look at all we've done, please give a gift. And that is certainly celebratory and worthwhile of investment, but all of that work is also over. When I'm giving a gift, I want my gift to go towards making something new happen. So we really encourage you to think about your case for support, to be forward-looking. And to have an eye towards the vision and future and what new things do we want to make happen? Even if that's just continuing with the good work that you do now, you want your case for support to invite donors in so that their donation is doing something upcoming or forthcoming. And then that also gives you the great opportunity to do stewardship around that and circle back around to say, hey, we promised you we were going to see 500 kids in our tutoring program this year. We just enrolled our 500 students. And wanted to let you know about that. So, there's also stewardship you can do that way. But when you focus your case for support on past impact, there's nothing for me, the donor, to do there,
0: which I think is also a place where a lot of nonprofits can go sideways. I want to talk more about this. I think this is an incredibly important point. I've worked with a lot of organizations that use their annual report as their solicitation piece. And it falls flat a lot of the time for the exact reasons that you just gave. It says, this is what we did and it's fantastic. And yes, we are proving our credibility and we are building trust and we're showing that we are an institution that you should support. But the need is still there. The need is still there. We haven't solved this problem. So yeah, maybe Lori, you could jump more into how can organizations make this mindset shift into being more forward looking while still talking about impact. I think that's the real fine line to to walk at end of year.
1: Yeah. Well, first I want to say that the annual report absolutely can still be one of the tools in your toolbox. But to Holly's point, you should be thinking about that piece as a cultivation piece. And, you know, it really depends on when you're fiscal year is and when you produce your annual report. But for a lot of organizations, that annual report is often coming out far before end of year giving. So to Julia's point about building the foundation year long for getting ready to make your ask at the end of the year, thinking about your annual report at whichever time you use it or more than more than once if you're using it throughout the year, you know, that's another way to do cultivation. And the ask should be forward-looking after you've shared, proven your impact to date through that report. Some other things that are really helpful to kind of shifting your mindset to be forward-facing is to think about your strategic plan. Um, Your strategic plan, while it's guiding your organization and the work that you're going to do, and it's setting your goals forward-facing, and probably your program team is spending a lot of time on those goals, it's absolutely an amazing tool for fundraisers to develop your content from. I mean, that is literally what your organization has set out to accomplish in the next year or two years or three years. And so if you're looking on for how to structure your content for an appeal or a campaign, whether it's end of year or any other time of the year, and you are trying to remind yourself to be forward facing, take yourself back to that strategic plan, which is forward-facing and laying out the roadmap for the future and pull from there some of the talking points and data points of what the organization is striving to do, because quite honestly, that is exactly what you need funding for. (laughs) So there's no better way to communicate to donors the impact that they will have than to pull right from the plan that the organization is following.
0: All of these points, I really want to hammer home for the small nonprofit fundraiser marketer. They have so much on their plate and it's so hard to plan ahead in this way. But I think that it's sort of like the seeds that you plant, even in January and February and March throughout the year, that's really going to affect what you can reap sort of at the end of the year. So I want to ask Holly, what are some things that small nonprofits can do throughout the year to really build a good foundation for end of year? Because I know that the three of us, we all believe in a very holistic approach and you can't just, like we said before, start it on Giving Tuesday and all of a sudden never have spoken to your <laughs> never have spoken to your donors for the whole year. So maybe what are some things that we can do throughout the year?
2: Yeah. One of the tools that we love the best to get after this question is to create yourself a stewardship plan that has a page in it that visualizes What are you going to do over the course of the year for all of your various donors? So that this could be maybe you have the different donor groups that you want to target across the top. So it's smalls and then mids and majors, first-time donors, recurring donors, if you have planned givers. And then down the side, you would write out on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis, What are the various touch points that you can commit to providing folks that are doable given the size of your team? We really believe that quality of effort matters more than quantity of effort and that donors will notice when you do things well and you do things consistently as opposed to when you just do a lot of things. So yes, making sure that you receipt gifts properly and punctually right off the bat, that is number one. You want to get those out the door as soon as you can. But then if it's in your capability or maybe something you experiment with is standing up a welcome series this year, or sending out a welcome packet, or sending out a quarterly donor update, or on a monthly basis, you commit to just sending a personal email to 20 donors of all different sizes and relationships to your organization in a way that just says, hey, I know it was earlier this month that you gave, but I just wanted to express again personally that that was really valuable to us. And we really thank you for your partnership in this work. That'll take you 10 minutes to do and is a very small touch, but has a very big impact for the receipt of it with the donor. So I think the biggest thing that you can do over the course of the year is chart out that plan of what can you commit to do on different intervals that are doable for your capacity in your shop. Maybe it's also that you involve board members to send out thank you emails or make phone calls. You do a spring phone thank-a-thon But I think where a lot of nonprofits also fall into a bit of a hole is that a donor makes a gift, we say thank you, and then we really don't say anything to them besides our general newsletter until we get to the end of your fundraising season. And all of a sudden, we have a lot to say, and it's all about giving again. And we have missed that opportunity of sort of the regular touch points throughout the year that remind folks, not only are they connected to the mission, but they've made a financial investment. And that is part of their relationship to the organization and remind them of their identity as a donor. So that when you do circle back around to making an ask, that doesn't feel like, oof, you're just here for my money. It feels like we're here for the partnership and the mission. And part of how I contribute to this is by making a gift.
0: I completely agree. And I love what you wrote, and I'll put the blog post, the five last minute to-dos for the end of year, how you talk about multi-channel. And I think what organizations get wrong a lot of the time, and sometimes the ones that listen to me, because I talk a lot about digital and digital fundraising, digital marketing and social media, and they don't understand that it really is this ecosystem now where we are communicating with five or even six distinct generations of donors. And some people want direct mail. Some people want email. Some people want to connect on social media. Some people want text messages. And we have to take into account all of these touch points throughout the year. So Lori, to build more on the stewardship point, what are some of the ways that you recommend that we engage donors, like we work so hard, we work so hard to get new donors, new donors, donor acquisition, lead generation. Those are all things that are in my wheelhouse that I work on, especially at end of year and giving Tuesday. How do we truly build that relationship with these brand new donors? And how do we really get them to understand that what we're doing is so important? Like what if they're, brand new to us? What if they're complete strangers? Like Giving Tuesday, for example, if you're running a Facebook ad, you get a $5 donor, or a $10 donor that saw the ad, or maybe I ran a campaign on Giving Tuesday and I got my friends to donate. What are some stewardship tips that you have for organizations that work so hard to acquire new donors, but don't do the best job maybe at retaining them?
1: Yes. Well, a lot of what we already talked about is going to pertain to that first-time donor group, thinking about what Holly said. First of all, you don't want to get that first-time donor, give them a text receipt and then not talk to them again for months and months and months. So one of the ways that we love focusing on first-time donors at any time of the year, but, you know, giving Tuesday and end of year might be when you have a higher volume of them coming in because of all the activity is to use a welcome series, set up a welcome series. You can do this digitally with your email, depending on what software you use and what kind of capability it has. It might even be able to be automated. Or if your email system is not quite set up the right way to make that happen in a way that feels like you can manage it, I mean, start simple with a welcome uh, letter or welcome packet in the mail if needed. Both of those things, they serve the same role of this person has just heard about your organization. This is the kind of peak of their interest in this moment. They took their first step to make a gift to you. You don't want them to forget that they did that or that you exist or not really have any idea of the full expansiveness of your work and your mission because they were maybe responding to their friend's Facebook post, but didn't really pay attention. So this is your moment when they remember they gave to you, because believe it or not, there's all kinds of statistics about the fact that a lot of donors don't even remember that they gave to an organization a few months later if they haven't been engaged by that organization in between. So in a welcome series, that's a three to seven email series. And again, what number you fall in with how many emails you send is going to depend on your capacity and your your technology. So don't get overwhelmed if it feels like we could never send seven emails, then don't. Send three. Send two to start with. The whole point is Put something together that distinctly welcomes first-time donors into your community beyond just thanking them for their gift. That's step one. But then you want to share with them what are some other ways they can get involved. Are there other ways that they can contribute? Maybe they can become a monthly donor as a next step. Um, Do you have volunteer opportunities? Can they sign up for special emails or newsletters? Uh, All of those things are ways to immediately tell a first-time donor that there's more for them here. There's more impact you can have, that we recognize that you're new to our community and we're so grateful you're here. So that would be my first tip is to set up some sort of welcome series or welcome letter that you are going to execute for all first-time donors within A month of their donation at the most, as far as putting something in the mail goes. But if you can set that up digitally over email, then that should be deployed within a few days of their gift. And then the next email should come within a week of that first one. And this should be a pretty rapid succession while the donor knows and remembers that they made this gift and they're primed
0: to pay attention to you. Those are such great tips and great advice. And I want to recap the five key actions. They are get yourself a goal, create a goal, which I talk a lot about. If you don't know where you're going, how do you know how you're going to get there? Giving Tuesday, do giving Tuesday in a way that feels authentic and relevant to you. Number three is the mailing, which I think is such a fantastic idea. Like even, like you said, Lori, even if you don't email, mail your whole list, just a tiny segment, send a postcard send a mailing and it is, can be really, really impactful. And then number four, send more emails than you probably think you should (laughs) email until the end. And number five, we covered in depth. Thank you. Thank you. Don't just send the automated receipt. That's an acknowledgement. It's not stewardship. I think all of those tips are really actionable, especially for small organizations that might not have a big marketing budget. So How else can people find out about Thread Strategies? How can they get in touch with you? I know you have a lot of free resources and downloads.
1: Yeah, we would love to help you all follow up on this topic or other topics. One of the places we put the most current and consistent resources is on our YouTube channel. So we invite you to find us at Thread Strategies on YouTube. And we've got bite-sized tips and tricks There and they're organized by channel. So there is an end-of-year channel. So if you want more on this topic, that was a great place to go first. Of course, our website, threadstrategies.com, is where we have blog posts and information about trainings that we host and just how to get in touch with us to learn more about our work. From there, feel free to reach out directly as well. Um, hello at threadstrategies.com is our kind of general email to reach out. And we love talking fundraising, as you can see. So questions or resources that would be helpful, please feel free to reach out to us at any time.
0: And Holly, any last minute, like a pep talk for people listening? Like you can do it. We can do it, right? We're going to get it. We're going to raise money.
1: You picked the right person, Holly. Oh man.
0: (laughs) Yes. Holly seems to me like she'd be a very good person to give a pep talk. (laughs) I do operate at 11 most of the time.
2: So I would say you really can approach... End of year fundraising is the March madness of fundraising. This is like when you get to go out there and show everything that you've been learning, connect with your folks. It's also when it's the most fun. Like This is when you get to see your folks reconnecting with you, re-engaging. It's when you get to experiment. You get to tell the stories that matter to you. There's so much mission connection that happens in this time of year. Yes, we are focused on dollars. Yes, we are focused on making goal. But this is also the time of year where you really get reminded about why the work matters and just how many other people share that belief with you. And that is so inspiring to know that it is a community rallying around a cause, a community, something out there that really matters to you all. So this is just the moment where, yes, it's a lot of hard work, but this is your rockstar moment as a fundraiser, Those are sort of few and far between for us fundraisers. So you got to take them where they come. And end of year is definitely your place to say, all right, we're going to experiment. We're going to have fun. We're going to connect with our community and we are going to get the resources we need to do the
0: good work. Love it. All right. Everyone get out there, raise that money, build that community. And I know you can do it. If you need help, threadstrategies.com. I will put all of the links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Lori and Holly, for being here today. I know you have a lot of clients, a lot of work to do, so I really appreciate it. Our pleasure.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. We we love talking about end of year, so this has been really fun, and we're wishing everyone a super successful March Madness of Fundraising.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's do it. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at JuliaCampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn.